Well, this evening we want to consider uh, God's Word from Genesis chapter 4. We'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, continuing our evening series through the Ten Commandments under the heading of Living for God. The Ten Commandments are God's moral law given throughout all the ages for the instruction of His people. And today we're considering the Sixth Commandment, You shall not murder from Genesis chapter 4. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1 through verse 16. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel, And now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry, and his vase fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not also be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be as a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be as a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Here ends the reading of God's Word this evening. And we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechism now, the forms and prayers in the pew in front of you, to Lord's Day 40. Lord's Day 40, which can be found on page 247 in the forms and prayers. Question 105 asks, What is God's will for you in the Sixth Commandment? That I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor. Not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture. And certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either, 
Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. 106. Does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that He hates the root of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. And then we turn the page to question 107. Is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves. To be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them. To protect them from harm as much as we can and even do good to our enemies. Well, blessed congregation, the 20th century has been described as a century of violence. With the modern state being its greatest killer. It was reported in 1990 that state violence, wars, revolutions, ethnic cleansing, were responsible for the unnatural deaths of 125 million people during that century. And I'd like to add this evening that the 21st century is only continuing this trend. Now it's true. Many of these 125 million deaths took place in far-off lands. Places like Cambodia with genocide. And Germany. World War II. But it can be argued here this evening that our culture, North American culture, leads the way in the subject of death. In 2021 alone, there were 23,000 reported murders in the United States. 800 of those murders coming from the city of Chicago alone. According to the Pew Research Center, in our country, there was more than 600,000 abortions performed last year. We and our children are familiar with names such as John Wayne, Jeffrey Dahmer, and Ted Bundy. And there may be people in this room who know of people who have personally suffered violence and maybe even violent deaths. Now, I have never had someone come into my office and say to me, Pastor, I'm really struggling with the Sixth Commandment. And thank goodness for that. Murder is typically one of the Ten Commandments we think we have figured out. But in Genesis 4, of which the centerpiece of this story is murder, we see Moses record not only the murder itself, but also its motive. That in Cain's heart, there was hate. In Cain's heart, there was anger. There was envy. There was vengefulness, which our catechism calls the root of murder. 
of which Jesus Himself in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, warns us about when He says in Matthew 5, verse 21, He says, You have heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Jesus Himself points to the root of the problem. You see, many of us in this room, by God's grace, are not tempted to murder. Physically kill someone. But we are all tempted to murder in our hearts. When someone doesn't do their work in the group project, and the whole grade goes down, we are tempted to anger. When that annoying person takes your parking spot again, we are tempted to murder. When your kids just won't leave you alone, there is temptation. And the sixth commandment and Genesis 4 hold up a mirror to our own hearts and show us that there are disguised forms of murder that's how the catechism puts it, that exist in our hearts as well. See, whether we like it or not, Genesis 4 is about us. The story of murder and violence and anger is a story about human weakness and our temptation to anger but it is also a story of God's grace. That God can even take murder. He can even take a murderer and make them symbols of His inglorious grace. He can make them symbols of His glorious grace. I want to show you this evening our theme that we need to flee from murder and its motives. And we should value those who are made in the image of God. Flee from murder and its motives and value those made in the image of God. I want to show you that in three points about Cain. We want to see Cain's offering. We want to see Cain's sin. And then we want to see Cain's way. But first, let's look at Cain's offering. Adam and Eve were just like any other parent. You know, boys and girls, when they... Your parents found out you, they were expecting with you, they were filled with great dreams and aspirations about what you would become. And so it was with the first pregnancy recorded in human history. We are told in Genesis 4 that after Cain and Eve, or excuse me, Adam and Eve, are banished from the Garden of Eden, life continued on. Adam still went to work. Adam knew his wife. He had an intimate relationship with her. And she conceived. We read that this is the first pregnancy in human history. This is the first baby born. And we have to remember that they didn't have the famous book, What to Expect When You Were Expecting. They didn't have older women be able to counsel and coach Eve through the pregnancy and the labor process. Oh, this was all new to them. But what we see in verse 1 is that Eve is filled with hope. 
You see, the context of Genesis 4 is that in the Garden of Eden, there was no pain and no death. But now there is. In the land of Eden, the produce simply yielded itself to Adam and Eve. He didn't have to work by the sweat of his brow to feed himself and his family. But now he does. They won, at one point had no shame and unhindered access to God, and that's all gone. But not, hope is not lost. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, one chapter backwards, where as God is banishing them from that blessed place as close to heaven on earth as any human has ever got, God says, to them, the serpent, in Genesis 3.15, we call this the first preaching of the Gospel, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God, though they didn't have what to expect when they were expecting, God told them to expect a child. And that this child would be a deliverer. That this child would bring them back to Eden. And so here we see in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, she has a man. And the name Cain in Hebrew, Cain, actually sounds like the word for acquired or obtained. I think as she's giving birth as she is bringing this child into the world, the child that God promised in Genesis 3.15, she is saying, just in His name, is this the Deliverer? James Montgomery Boyce points this out. It's like Eve, when she names him Cain, is saying, here he is. I have obtained, with the help of the Lord, the Promised One. You can imagine the questions that these parents are having. Is this the Messiah? Is this the one who will crush the head of the serpent? Is this the one who will bring us from the pain back to Eden? But where there's a contrast here in Genesis 4, we read in verse 2 that there's another baby, Abel. And Abel is not as impressive to Adam and Eve. The word Abel literally means breath and can be translated as meaningless. We're not sure why he was named this. Our best attempts at a guess is that he may have been weak in birth. He may have even been sickly, mentally handicapped, or crippled. Maybe they didn't think he would live long. And so they're putting their hope in Cain, but Abel, not so much. Two children born to the first two parents, Cain and Abel. Now there's something I think that needs to be said here. And that's that God gave to the first parents both Cain and Abel. And I want to add here that even weak and sickly children are a gift of life. This is a modern application that needs to be brought out of Lord's Day 40 in our day. Because you know, when 
Lisa was pregnant for the first time. And we went to our first doctor visit. And we scheduled our MRI, or what, what do they call it, the ultrasound, to see the baby. The doctor gave us information about a possible abortion should the child be disabled. Pragmatically, the Canadian government, and likewise the government of the United States, does not want disabled children. It's a drain on society. It's taxing on the family. But I'm pointing out to you here this evening that this passage speaks to the sanctity of life, not only of Cain, but also of Abel. Abel too was a gift from God. Abel too was made in God's image. If you flip back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says as much that God creates every man and every woman in His own image. Male and female. And it doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter if you are healthy or disabled, whether you are old or infirm. Every single one of you in the eyes of God has inherent worth and dignity as being made in His image. Whether you have autism or Down syndrome. Whether you have spina bifida or heart defects. Whether you are handsome or ugly, rich or poor, male or female, you are part of the beauty and the diversity of this world and part of the beauty and diversity of the body of Christ. Now there's a call here, church, for you and me, that everyone who walks through the door of this church should feel valued and part of this community. Christ on earth loved the leper. And so we too are called to love those with disability. Christ embraced the single mother, the disabled. It is the world that is pragmatically focused and discards the broken, but it is Christ who is focused on the individual and embraces the broken. And we see this in the lives of the children. Was it Cain who was embraced? The strong one? The one we hope will deliver us? No, it was Abel. The cripple, maybe. The mentally disabled, maybe. I don't know what was wrong with him. But something was wrong in his body. But the rest of the passage actually focuses on his heart. Notice with me, it doesn't say anything about the growing up of the boys other than that Cain becomes a farmer like his father Adam and Abel becomes a shepherd. And verse 3 says, in the course of time, so after they've grown up, at a specific time, both of the boys brought offerings before the Lord. Now the Bible doesn't tell us how they learned about these offerings. We assume that Adam must have had some knowledge from God about offerings. And he instructed his children as to how they should bring offerings. And so they come. Remember, they don't have the law, but they must have had some understanding of worship. 
some understanding that God requires an offering. And the rest of the text reveals that. This passage reveals to us that you need to come before God with a humble and a contrite heart, as David says in Psalm 51. That we are to come before God, not with empty hands, but with the best of our gifts, as the book of Leviticus tells us. We see that we are to come before God and bring the first and the best. And all of those principles are drawn out, not from Cain, but from Abel. He brought, it says, the firstborn of the flock. He brought the fat portions. That's the best of what he has to offer. And he must have come with a humble heart because it says that the Lord had regard not just for his offering, but had regard for Abel himself. And this is a helpful reminder that God, even right now, is not just concerned with your tithing and your singing, but is concerned with the hearts of you and me as we worship Him. And so Abel comes and he brings an acceptable offering, but more importantly, he brings an acceptable heart. The weak one, the broken one, is the accepted one. But what about Cain? Why was his offering not accepted? Well, I'm going to give you three reasons why I think Cain's offering wasn't accepted. The first thing we see is that Cain does not bring the first fruits. Whereas Abel brings the firstborn of the flock, we read that Cain simply brought some of the produce. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 26 verse 2, uh, it says you can bring produce. You can bring an offering of grain or corns or whatever else they were growing out there. But it says you shall take some of the first fruit of the ground. It needed to be offered in an acceptable way. We surmise that Cain was simply bringing what he wanted. And let us be also reminded this evening that any time an offering was brought in the Bible, it needed to be through the shed blood. Hebrews 9 verse 22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We even see this prior to Genesis chapter 4 when God banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Remember, they put those fig leaves on them, but then God slaughters an animal and clothes them in their skins. He sheds blood. Cain brings no blood. Yet most importantly, Cain comes to God with a hard heart. If you fast forward in the chapter, you'll see the Lord speaks to Cain, seeking to intervene to save his soul. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Sin is at the door. Its desire is contrary to, uh, contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This really reveals Cain's heart because even though the Lord cared and sought to save him, Cain hardens his heart. And rejects the Lord's advice. I want to suggest to you that Cain didn't come here to worship the Lord. He came here for himself. In the book of Hebrews, the writer helps us understand this in Hebrews 11 verse 4 when he says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain 
than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts. This says it all. Abel comes by faith and the hope of the Messiah before God. Cain comes before God and he says that this is a sacrifice I will bring. Take it or leave it. This is quite something. When Cain was born, his mother was hoping that he would be the seed of the woman. What we see at the beginning of Cain's life, even in just chapter 4, he's actually the seed of the serpent. This shows us it's about the heart. And so does our catechism say that. Regarding the subject of murder. It's not just about how you look or what you do. It's about the heart. This is our second point. Look at Cain's sin. See, our catechism says in question 105, what is God's will in the sixth commandment? I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by thought, word, look, or gesture. And not by actual deeds. And what we see in Genesis 4 is that Cain follows that exact progression. See, after God had regard for Abel and his offering, and not Cain's, we read, look at this verse, so Cain was very angry. The word for anger, hara, means to be hot. To be furious. There's a burning up inside of Cain. And his hatred is so powerful, it's distorting his body so that anyone could see it. And this is part of the story that's so touching. It's that even though Cain is rejected, and even though there's murder in his heart, God doesn't walk away. He intervenes. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God wants to help Cain. He wants Cain to get over his anger so that he can have peace with God and peace with his fellow man. And I want to talk to you men this evening, women too, but especially men here, about the subject of anger. Do you see what God is saying about this? He is warning Cain that if he doesn't deal with his anger, it will destroy him. Seeing red ticked off. I'm mad. That's the root of murder. And refusing to deal with anger is flirting with disaster. But if you've ever been angry, you know how hard it is to change. How do we deal with anger biblically? There's a few principles that you can draw out from this passage to help with Anger. 
First, look at this. God sees and knows Cain. Sometimes when we are angry, we think that we are alone in this world. No one knows our rage. And we can withdraw from our families. We withdraw from our workplaces, our churches, and our societies. But this passage tells us that God knew. He understood Cain's anger and his frustration. He sees him as he is. And in our rage, we too need to remember that God is watching over us. He is sovereign. And even the situation that is really ticking you off, He is intimately involved with and sovereign in. Cain needs to remember that God is involved. And remember that God can turn even your angry situation for good. The only way to turn anger into love is if we remember that God can turn evil into good. Think of Joseph. His brothers threw him in a well. Sold him into slavery. He was rotting in prison for years. But he was able to love his brothers because God took what was evil and turned it to what was good. And even when evil people do harm you and do offend you, remember that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will make things right. You and I don't have to. The third, notice this in this passage, God says to Cain, look at yourself. See, when we are angry, and I speak from experience here, everyone else is to blame. No doubt people are factors, but God says, Cain, the true reason you are angry is because of you. It's from within. In Cain's sin, the fault was not outside of himself. It wasn't that Abel needed to change, nor did God. It was his own sin. And anger was his own sinful response. And so, as is often the case, anger wells up and he directs it at an innocent party. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. It's so simply written, it almost underscores the horror here. We don't know what Abel did, or what Cain did. Did he beat him over the head with a rock? Slay him with a sacrificial knife? Choke the breath from his lungs. However, Cain slew Abel. There's only one conclusion it is absolutely premeditated murder in the first degree. That's what the catechism refers to as the actual deed. You shall not kill in Hebrew, two words, lo rasha. Literally, no murder. It's different from the word kill in Hebrew because sometimes it is appropriate and a God-given right for men and women to defend themselves. The Bible says there's a time for war and peace, but the Bible never never, 
endorses the killing of innocent human life. And so Genesis 4 is about the murder of Abel. But it's not the last mention of Cain in the Bible. In Jude 11, the apostle refers to the way of Cain. That sadly, Cain's horrific sin was not an isolated historical event. But it has become a pattern that many people continue to follow even to this day. We see this in the Old Testament with a Levite's concubine in Judges 19 or the murder of Naboth for his vineyard. But, the Cain, but Cain's way, or the way of Cain, broadens to even harming others. Or harming or recklessly endangering ourselves. Now there's no topic more painful to address than suicide for those who have experienced this in their family and friends. But there is an epidemic of suicide in our culture. The CDC reports that death by suicide in the year of 2022 accounted for nearly 5% of all deaths in the United States. Nearly 50,000 people took their own lives last year. This is not a new phenomenon. There are five instances of suicide in the Bible. Judges 9, 1 Samuel 31, 1 Kings 16, Matthew 27. People commit suicide when they feel that their life is pointless and that they would be better off dead. Allow me to speak to those who may be tempted to this suicide today. You are precious to God. We just sang a few moments ago, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, created in His very image. You may not feel loved, but you surely are loved, loved by God. Now the Roman Catholic Church teaches something like suicide being the unforgivable sin because you take your life and you can't go to the church for absolution. But it needs to be said that suicide is not the unforgivable sin. But it is still sin. Self-murder is still murder. Now you might say to me, well, pastor, you have no right to speak. You have no idea what it's like to be suicidal. Well, Julia Gossick, who was a wife and a mother, wrote in the Journal of Biblical Theology that she herself had suffered the suicide of five different family members in her life. And she wrote, suicide is not a genetic trait nor a family curse. Suicide is a sinful choice made by individuals. This is not an unloving nor disrespectful statement, she goes on. It is the truth. I dearly loved my family members that committed suicide, but their choices were unrighteous and sinful. It is a sin that Satan is tempting you towards. You may feel that there is no way out. 
But the Bible promises that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. You can call upon the name of the Lord and He promises that He will provide a way of escape in temptation. You may feel that life is pointless, but your life is precious. Please, if you are suicidal, talk to someone who can help you. Call me. Call your elder. Speak to a trusted psychologist. Don't take your precious life. There's another modern application that needs to be mentioned. The psalmist says, we just sang, for you formed my inward parts and you knit me together in my mother's womb. The Bible has always taught that life begins at conception. And this isn't just a religious conviction. This is a scientific fact. Every single living, breathing human traces their life back to conception. And whether you believe it to be a baby or a glob of embryos, it is still life. And so we need to talk about the subject of abortion. And we can make the argument as simple as this, abortion is wrong because God loves little children. And this is seen all throughout the Bible. In Exodus 21, God regards the child in the womb as an individual. Genesis 39, we just quoted, you knit me, God knit me together in my mother's womb. Jesus in Mark 10 gathers the little ones into His arms and says, let the little children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And He blesses them. Just like suicide, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. Many women report after having an abortion having symptoms of great depression and emptiness. The Christian church needs to maintain that abortion is a sin that can be forgiven in the blood of Christ. That even for those who have aborted their children, that sin too can be forgiven. Taken off the record. It can be forgotten. One of the greatest examples of forgiveness in the Bible is when David killed Uriah and committed adultery with Bathsheba. He confesses in Psalm 51 that when he repents, he shall be made as white as snow. There is healing in Christ for those who have had abortions. And we need to keep this in mind, and especially this is grounded in Genesis chapter 4, as Cain, when the Lord curses him and gives him his punishment, Cain cries out, it's too much for me. And does God recoil at the murderer? Does he say, no, you murdered, get away from me? And neither does he say that to the person who is tempted suicide and the person who has committed the sin of aborting their children. No, 
God answers Cain's Cain in his grace. He gives grace to the murderer. He marks him so that nobody will abuse him. He gives grace to killers. And congregation, as I said at the onset, we are more like Cain than we care to admit. We do harbor disguised forms of murder in our hearts. But remember that Christ went to the cross for murderers. He went to the cross and as He looked down upon those Roman soldiers who drove the nails through His hands and His feet, He cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Peter says in Acts 2 that we are murderers. When he's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ and His crucifixion, he says, this is the Lord Jesus whom you crucified. Christ went to the cross for our sins. And though we were not the ones who put the nails into His flesh, we were the ones who put the nails into His heart. And God, like He does with Cain, does not recoil at the blood that rests on our hands. He forgives us graciously in Jesus. And so my final word this evening is that Christians, we need to open our arms to those struggling in the way of Cain. When a young man is tempted with suicide, we need to throw our arms around them. When a woman is depressed because and feeling alone after her abortion, she needs a place here. The husband with anger in his heart, the teen with hatred, don't ignore them. Don't join the crowd of people who ignore their need and add to their loneliness. This is why the catechism ends in question 107. The call here is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly, and protect them from as much harm as we can. This is what Christ has done for us. May He give us the grace to do it to others. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You that the Lord Jesus went to the cross who was murdered for us that He would forgive those with blood on their hands. He forgave the Roman soldiers. He forgave the thief on the cross. You have forgiven us even though our sins led Him to the cross. And Father, as we even prepare this, morning, this evening to celebrate the Lord's Supper, work in our hearts to produce faith and repentance. We thank You for the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.